Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Paris, ISIS, Syria, the Arab Spring, the Arab Winter, the state of multilateralism, Europe's migrant crisis, Shi versus Sunni, the Assad option. Why? Who? Where to now? Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, measuring the distance food travels from farm to fork in support of local farmers in our community. Elwood Thompson's local market, serving Richmond for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. Joining us from Harvard University, Professor Tariq Masood of the Kennedy School, author of the book Counting Islam. He's been covering the Arab Spring, the rise of ISIL and everything else that has emanated over the last five years from the region. Thank you so much. Oh, it's great to be with you, Robin. And in studio with me here, Emmy-winning former producer at CBS News, ABC News, and Dateline NBC, Roberta Ostersachs. Thank you, Robin. Happy to be here. Thank you. Tarek, uh, to just telegraph to people to what extent people are walking on eggshells about this is you guys just had a bomb threat in Harvard University. We were worried we couldn't patch you in, but somebody had called in some sort of threat into Harvard Yard and they shut down three buildings. This is three, four days after the Paris attacks. Yes, I uh, just literally saw the email about that as I was coming over here, but I think that it turned out not to have been a credible threat. Well, let me just take you back over the pond and uh, where you were Friday afternoon when you saw the news and the body count tragically uh, escalating in this and realizing that Paris had its own kind of London, uh, can't say 9-11 equivalent, but yes. it, was, it was violated in a similar way. Uh, did you immediately suspect this amorphous being ISIL and, and, and what kind of if-then scenarios clicked in your head? Yeah, no, Robin, I mean, it's kind of become a sad feature of modern life for, you know, um, a Muslim of my, you know, background that every time you hear about some kind of tragic event like this happening in the back of your mind, you think, oh, God, I really hope this time it was not people who uh, claim to share my faith. But of course, as we know, that's uh, what it was in, in Paris. And it brought back immediately the specter of the Charlie Hebdo massacre. You know, it made me think of London 7-7. And it did, as you say, make us think of of 9-11. Um, and for me, the question in in with all of this violence that happens in Europe, um, you know, how much of this, even when they claim that they are part of the so-called Islamic State, as remember, I think the the hostage taker in, in Australia last year did, you know, the question always is, to what extent are these people really linked to that organization? And does that really then suggest that ISIS has tentacles that reach into the heart of Europe? Or is this kind of violence just a manifestation of the problem that the French and the Europeans have been having for a really long time, which is how to integrate the Muslims who already live there. And so I've been trying to figure out who are these people who perpetrated this uh, this act and what is it that they were trying to accomplish? Were they trying to get France, draw France into the war in Syria, or were they trying to bring war to France itself and have France fall upon its uh, its own domestic Muslim population? So, now, for my guest yeah. in studio, Roberta Ostersachs, you you were explaining to me that this really hit close to home because you'd spent several years in Paris, in addition to covering the September 11 attacks for NBC News when you were in Manhattan. I think it, it brings to mind a long-standing tension in France between the Muslim community and the Christian community. And it's painful on so many levels. I think there's been a lot of work to try and create harmony 
but there are years and years and years of racism that have that filter throughout the whole culture. So I think Tark's question is really important to examine. Where does this come from and why France? And I received an email from a relative of mine who lives in France, and I wrote to her just to see how she was doing. And she said, we are, we are okay. She said, and I quote, I only hope that more people would want to welcome refugees knowing that they have had to deal with that kind of violence daily. Who wouldn't want to escape that? And I found that pretty powerful, that her reaction was to want to welcome more, more mm-hmm. Syrians. You know, an easy read on this is, is that a lot of it just emanates from really poorly conceived colonialism. Not that colonialism is ever particularly well conceived mm. or there's a lot of premeditation to it. But if you look at a map of uh, the early to mid 20th century Middle East and you see the straight lines drawn around places mm. like uh, Syria and Iraq, these were drawn by uh, the Brits and mm. uh, some American and people. The French. Yeah. And the French and uh, mm. corrupt kingdoms uh, and people who wanted to entrench, you know, oligarchs and, and Pluto who wanted to entrench their own holding. And this is a long unwinding and a hangover. I think if, if you look at what the Banlieus and outside of Paris have in common with all of this is that they're all, they all emanate from an original colonial sin, whether it was France and Algeria or Tunisia or Morocco or the way Syria was drawn and the way, uh, you know, Tariq, maybe the, the, the best of the worst options that we might have right now mm. is an SOB like uh, Assad being in power mm. and being as murderous as he is and this horrible circular uh, uh, dilemma of people trying to flee him and yet Europe having to close its borders, risking the fact that that maybe extremists are going to get through. Yeah. You know, Robin, this is, you know, I teach a course here at the Kennedy School, which we basically, the question of this course is, why is the Middle East and particularly the Muslim majority countries of the Arabic speaking world, why are they such a basket case economically, right? They punch far below their weight uh, politically, right? The Arab world, until Tunisia's uh, revolution in 2011, the Arab world is sort of the last holdout, the last part of the world that had not a single liberal democracy. And to us, the question is, why is this place such a basket case. Why is the major export of the Arab world, aside from oil, uh, terrorists? And a lot of- uh, There's some great pistachios and figs, too. Don't forget that. (laughs) The pistachios come from from the country of your ancestors. Um, That's right. Iran, of course. Yeah. Not Arabs. but the you know one of the answers that people offer is precisely the answer that you just offered, which is that there's this colonial experience uh, that colonial powers came in, they divvied up the Arab world into these kind of fictitious states with borders that were not really natural, and then they endowed each of these Arab states with sort of client governments that were really good at repressing dissent, but not really good at doing anything that uh, a, a legitimate representative government does, and they therefore said the the region on this uh, terrible path that it's on. I'm not sure that's the right answer. There's a lot of arguments for and against it. Look, there's other parts of the world that had pretty miserable colonial experiences, but they're not sending us, you know, uh, waves of terrorists. Um, and that then leads people to other questions like, well, to what extent is this about some irreconcilability between Islam and the modern world, between Muslim inhabitants of Europe and the modern liberal ideologies uh, that, uh, we, you know, that drive these European countries? So there's a lot 
lot of, you know, there, you know I don't know that we're ever going to be able to diagnose a single answer for why these places are such basket cases. We sometimes, in the language of social science, we say it's overdetermined. You know, there's too many explanations and all of them are valid. But from a very, um, you know, if yeah. you were to slap a very basic, you know, uh, as, as, as a fat Westerner talking here, yeah. not very well read on this, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Mm. Um, you, it is in your vested interest as ISIL, as you're annexing more and more territory in Sy- Syria. It is estimated that, uh, you know, uh, Syria is pretty much a failed state right now. Assad might control yes. a third to 40 percent of the original territory that he had under yep. his iron fist as recently as five years ago. Wouldn't it be in your vested interest as Islamic State, as the caliphate, to kind of you thrive off the deterioration of multilateralism and transatlantic unity. Why would you do anything that would have everybody changing their pictures on Facebook, uh, Paris and the United States suddenly feeling a unanimity that they've not felt for the longest time, Obama having a press conference, joint airstrikes on Syria? I mean, I understand that it's not necessarily a rational if-then calculation. Why would you not do it? That's what you want to shake everyone up. Because the status quo has been great for ISIL. Uh, you know, we have the situation there where we're kind of boxed in the, the NATO and the rest of the world thinking, gosh, it's it's at this point where we neglected it enough that it's Assad versus ISIL. And who would you rather have? Oh, that's interesting. Well, what do you think, Tari? Well, so, you know, Robin, it just depends who, you know, we're talking about what happened in Paris as if it was, uh, you know, as if we know that it was basically carried out by ISIS HQ. Mm. And you're absolutely right that if ISIS HQ now is saying, oh, we're going to go into and start killing people in Western capitals, then that doesn't quite seem like a very apt strategy. Remember also, right, last week the or two weeks ago, sorry, the uh, the downing of a Russian passenger jet flying out of uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, uh, which ISIS claimed. You know, you thought to yourself, why is ISIS, do- the, you know. Well, there is a stat, th- there's a stat that ISIL writ large has lost about a quarter of its territory in a year. So maybe there was an urgency to kind of shake things up. Right. I well, think but all you're doing is you're. They're trying, Robin, to get attention. And, and, and. For our listeners out there, you mean HQ ISIS headquarters? Yes, you say sorry. Us? So you mean yes. the, the leadership? You're wondering in, in are Rafka, these yeah. are, are these random rogue six guys who got together and created their own little vests and and bought the guns and decided to do an attack on Paris, or did this come down from the leadership of ISIL? Yes. Did Abu Bakr al Baghdadi make this look and what think do, about it? Yeah. Right. I mean. First of all, if you look at ISIL's statements about the Paris uh, attacks, it was very clear to me and to other analysts that they were almost it was almost like they were watching the news, right? The you know, if the news report said seven guys, the, their claims of responsibility said seven guys and then they so That's one. Number two, I mean, just to bring it back to Robin's point, right? Robin's point is that if ISIL is doing this, it doesn't seem really rational because all the, you know, the attack on the Russian airliner, yes, it gets you attention. That attention comes in the form of Russian bombs directly on your head. Whereas previously, Russia was bombing the Free Syrian Army or, you know, people who were fighting against Assad, right? ISIL wasn't really fighting against Assad. That's why Assad wasn't really fighting against ISIL. So now all ISIL does does by doing a, a, a engaging in a thing like the bombing in in uh, Egypt or in this attack in in uh, France is direct attention on itself and and bring uh, you know bring Western militaries uh, to bear against them. So it seems sort of irrational, and that leads me to think well. 
Maybe what this really is, that these are inspired attacks. These are basically freelancers, just like that fellow whose name is escaping me in uh, in Australia uh, last year. And, and if that's the case, right, if this is not the centrally uh, uh, administered plan of this malevolent entity, but is rather a kind of pop-up uh, expression of latent sympathy that inhabitants of Belgium or Paris have with this crazy organization, then that's a much tougher problem. Because you know what? We could bomb ISIL to smithereens. And those guys are still there. And the ideas that animate this violence aren't going away. Well, when you look at this map, Tariq, of the Middle East, and you talk about it being a uh, geopolitical basket case at this point, and 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 mm. so many different vacuums. I mean, we could throw eighty thousand metaphors into this. What yeah. is what is the uh, equilibrium kind of out of this? Do, do do tribes then redraw their own borders? I mean, obviously, the weird thing about an Alawite, um, you know, nominally Shiite uh, uh, strongman mm. keeping Syria together, which is a majority Sunni country, mm-hmm. um, and you had Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni, Sunni. strongman keeping a Shiite country together. Now you mm-hmm. have arguments that. Iran is effectively in control of Damascus and Baghdad. It's like we've yeah. completely inverted whatever order, uh, you know, uncomfortable order there was in the mm. Middle East from mm. 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, here's what we, we I think, have not recognized. I really think that our leaders are being sincere when they say they want to bring democracy, right, to these, to this part of the world and to other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, but what I think the aftermath of the Arab Spring should should have revealed, and I actually just came out with a book on this, is um, just, you know, democracy is great, but what's even more important than democracy is having a kind of functioning state, right, that can maintain order, that can keep you from being murdered in your bed in the middle of the night. And in the Arab world, you had that, right? Before the Arab Spring began, the one thing you could say about this place, uh, these countries, is that they were actually relatively safe, even Bashar al-Assad Syria. And now I think what we've seen well, is they a were compl- safe. They were safe, but there were no human rights. They weren't you know, really safe. There are no human it, rights now. <laughs> I know, but are, I mean, I, I mean, safe is such a uh, you know. If you were a woman, you look, were safe look, when you were locked in your house. Well, you were. Uh, well, let me let me. I mean, this is a tough thing for us to I, recognize, but I'd say that uh, the rights of women. Uh, made a lot more progress under Bashar al-Assad in Syria than they're going to under any government that's led by any of these rebel groups. I mean, Bashar al-Assad Syria was, for all intents and purposes, a kind of liberalizing uh, authoritarian regime. It was fairly secular. I mean, this is an English-speaking guy whose wife loves Western fashions. He goes—I said it before—he goes on the Charlie Rose show. They like to go on buying sprees. They are, uh, you know, ultimately they're not as extremist as and some these, of these look, amorphous I mean, messianic. Look, look, I mean, he has clearly revealed himself to be uh, one of uh, history's most awful rulers. He's irredeemable. But, you know, if if I'm thinking about, you know, the status quo ante, you know, the Arab Spring. And, you know, remember, the Arab Spring was in part, uh, you know, uh, uprisings, domestic uprisings against uh, uh, bad rulers. But there was an international dimension to the Arab Spring. You know, uh, there was, you know, not just the United States supporting or encouraging protesters, but Turkey and Qatar also doing the same thing. And, you know, there's, you know, we often talk about Syria as if, you know, the West needs to get involved. There 
needs to be more international involvement. No, there's plenty of international involvement. There has been from the very beginning. And part of it was, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like uh, Qatar, countries like even uh, Turkey, uh, you know, fomenting and bolstering the opposition against Assad. And so it made it really hard for that state to persist. Um, and I think yeah. now we see this kind of you know, war of all against all to, par to plagiarize Thomas Hobbes. Um, and I don't know how you put it back together well, again. Well, now we're really in trouble, Tariq. I would love to ask you to talk about France's response. And now the, the 10 bombs, you know, the 10 planes that went off yesterday and yes. the escalation now that we're going to see. What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, it just depends on what problem you're trying to solve, right? If I'm the French and the problem I'm trying to solve is ISIL and the existence of ISIL, then, you know, look, I'm not a military strategist. It seems reasonable to me that some combination of air power with some limited ground uh, engagement can actually degrade ISIS and recapture territory, especially with the cooperation of the Peshmerga, etc. If that's a problem you're trying to solve, fine. But if the problem where you really need to solve is the fact that you've got hundreds of thousands of young Muslim men living in your country who feel deeply alienated from your society and who are— That is the any, problem, right? Well, we, then, we then bombing Raqqa isn't going to solve that for you so at all. So what would you say to your students? What would you say—what do you say in the classroom we, about that problem, that bigger problem, the towns like Montfermeil? The towns where people have been—I did reporting on Montfermeil 15 yeah. years ago, where yeah. the schools are horrible, there's no access to proper health care, and, and immigrants, Arab immigrants, have been treated horrifically. Yeah. What do you say when we have generations now of immigrants living, being treated as second-class citizens, and, you know, they're angry? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, not only are they angry, but, you know— so look, I you know I don't know the answer to this. I mean, we had problems like this in our country, in the United States, right? We had I could describe for you uh, a, a racial minority in this country that were treated as second-class citizens yeah. for you know centuries, and yet it didn't it, it didn't uh, manifest itself in it, it you know the, the, their frustration manifested itself in the form of the civil rights movement, and and uh, so for me, what's what's challenging and what's difficult is you know why it you know. I am I, look. I don't know a lot about French politics, but I'm willing to bet you dollars to donuts that there are French Muslims, French Arabs, who are trying to organize politically within the French political system to claim a greater share of rights, to claim a greater share of government services, to claim to become included. And the problem is, the tragedy is, that these young men who engage in these spectacular acts of terror suck all the oxygen from those kinds of efforts, right? And they even suck some of the legitimacy out of those kinds of efforts. So I don't know what I tell my students except that gosh, this makes the, the cause of inclusion, uh, of, of harmony, just that much harder to achieve. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Professor Tariq Masood. He is the Sultan of Oman, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Kennedy School. He covers the role of religion in the Muslim world's political development. And in studio with me, it's a treat to have her today, is Roberta Oster-Sachs. She was a producer, an Emmy-winning producer at Dateline NBC, who covered the 9-11 attacks and spent quite a bit of time living in Paris. Uh, Tarek, I wanted to take us back, if you can, to the fork in the road that the Obama administration was at when Assad gassed some of his enemies. I believe it was the autumn of 2013. Mm -hmm. And this was a red line that was drawn. 
Uh, but some sort of prevarication happened behind the scenes. You see Hillary Clinton talking about it now. She did in the other night in the Democratic debate that maybe she would have been tougher. Um, do you think that there was intel that, uh, you know, almost a, a nod to the fact that, gosh, we cannot afford to off this guy uh, because the people that would officially fill in the vacuum in Damascus would be far worse? Well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting. Because question. I wonder. I mean, how yeah. often do we draw a line like that and not enforce it? He he quickly remanded it to Congress. You know, there was a, a there was a signal from the British Parliament that they would not support military action in Syria. And then the next thing you knew was, uh, uh, you know, Russia then escalates in, in Ukraine. And right. Everything right. kind of falls apart. And Obama, uh, he he seemed to have been pressured in his press conference this morning in Turkey in, in that the mm-hmm. criticism that he has not been tough enough. I mean. Would being tough on Syria have escalated ISIL even more? You know, I'm not sure it would have escalated ISIL even more, but here's what it would have done. It would have brought the United States into a situation that we know never ends well. Look, we've seen this movie before, this movie in which the United States goes into some Muslim majority or Arab country trying to uh, reform it or establish a legitimate democratic government. You know, we did it in Afghanistan. We did it in uh, in uh, Iraq. It failed there. We were complicit in trying to do it in Libya. Libya right now is in a state of civil war. Well, that was the pivot. We did do something in Libya. We knew when when uh, um... you know we were we were dragged into that uh, kicking and screaming by the Europeans and by the French in particular. And I think that President Obama is probably one of the smartest inhabitants we've had in the White House. You know, President Obama to me is the spiritual son of George H.W. Bush in that he has this fundamental conservatism about what he thinks American power can achieve in in terms of reconfiguring uh, political orders in distant lands. I think he understood, look, if we get into Syria, if we have a robust engagement in Syria where we now own this country, it's not going to end well, right? We don't know how to replace terrible, dictatorial, tyrannic governments with liberal democracies. Nobody's ever done that. Um, And so I think President Obama, you know, um, I think his instincts are correct. If I would have faulted him, I would have faulted him for the red line, not for his response uh, in backing away from it. I'd love to ask if we could shift for a minute to something sure. you talked about earlier about Islam and mm. about the bigger national conversation and about the confusion between what the terrorists are doing and their desire to connect their acts with a beautiful, peaceful religion. Yes. Could you talk about that a little? Sure. I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I'm a Muslim. I, I, you know, I care deeply about uh, my religion and I, 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 I love my religion. Um, but there's, you're absolutely right that there is a national conversation right now in which serious people are asking whether there's something about Islam that renders its followers uniquely prone to uh, religiously inspired violence. I work in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and this is, you know, in, in the places where I'm operating, you know, people generally view this as an illegitimate question. You know, of course we know that Islam is, as you said, Roberta, right, a beautiful, peaceful religion. And anybody who thinks that Islam is implicated in violence is a bigot or or, or, or worse. Um, um, but, you know, I, I feel like, you know, it's not a it's not an illegitimate question to ask. You know, I you know, you know, I could I could give you 
hundreds of examples of you know things that I you know I was taught as a school by growing up in Saudi Arabia uh, about you know how important it is for Muslims to engage in jihad uh, in order to defend the Muslim community but then people have very expansive definitions of what defending the Muslim community uh, entails so look I think this is a, a a, a serious question that serious people are asking. And, you know, I don't even know what the answer is. Like, Roberta, people say, you know what, you know, uh, Roger Cohen just had an ar- ar- article ar- arguing this in The New York Times where said, you know, Muslims need to, with in, in unison, you know, declare this kind of thing that ISIS does to be outside of the pale of Islam. I mean, I'm not quoting him directly, but, you know, there's always after every one of these acts of violence by my co-religionists, there's this international demand for Muslims to somehow uh, say in unison that this is out beyond the pale of Islam. And so I actually did a little research on it. And, you know, Look, the Mufti of Saudi Arabia has declared that ISIL are non-Muslims. You know, like there there are no shortage of uh, you know, res- you know, authority figures in Islam who are in the Muslim world who uh, declare ISIL uh, beyond the pale. The problem is that there's still a lot of people who think that when uh, these uh, acts of violence uh, take place, that they're legitimate and that they're justified either by Islamic doctrine or by you know the behavior of the West. Um, and that's that's a tougher conversation to have. I really haven't heard those voices very often. I think there's there's a Qasim Rashid, who's a, a writer and an Ahmadi Muslim who speaks out about peace and a number of people who on occasion will come out. But there we don't hear a, an outcry from the community saying, hey, let's take a break, guys, and let's make let's clarify. There is a there, these people who are terrorists, do not represent our values. But the argument Roberta's made that if, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church goes and hazes uh, the, the, the funeral of a homosexual person or a celebrity, that does this mean that every pastor in the United States and in Western Europe needs to step up and repudiate the Westboro Baptist Church? I mean, no, but I think they do speak up. I do, I do think in the case when you have huge, tri- these kinds of acts of terrorism, and there's so much, as Tariq is saying, so much confusion and international conversation about this, People don't understand the nuances here, that there is a, a, there's a vacuum. There's a leadership vacuum that needs to be filled, and there's an intellectual vacuum, and people are confused. Yeah, who is the—Tarek, I mean, who is the, the legitimate leader of the uh, Muslim world right now? Who is the equivalent to the pope? No, It doesn't really. exist. It doesn't, doesn't exist. I mean, because Shiite, Shiite, Shiite Islam Shiite is very different. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei can be inveighing against ISIL as much as he wants because they're yes. a natural enemy of the Sunni radicals who are marauding yes. across the Middle East and raping their women and killing, you know, and beheading— uh, we we have not Sunni. People. Yeah. So for your listeners, right, 10 percent of Muslims are Shiites and 90 percent are Sunnis. Shiites have this kind of built in structure of religious authority, of clerical religious authority. So the supreme leader of Iran is actually has uh, some uh, religious legitimacy for oh, all but he Shiites. has no legitimacy in Saudi Arabia. And there's no law. Right. That's the point. The Arabs so, the, and the Grand the, Mufti of right. Jerusalem has, has legitimacy maybe in the territories and North Africa has its own. People. Right. So that, that's, that's what, the because they're Sunnis, because they're they're you know, so for the Sunni Muslims, right, the 90 percent of Muslims, 
which I am part, Egyptians are Sunni Muslims, Indonesians tend to be majority Sunni Muslims. Um, they don't have any of this kind of religious structure. And so there isn't a single pope. Every one of these countries, as you said, has its, you know, its, its mufti, its l- religious leader. But even that person's legitimacy or authority is limited. Like you're in Egypt, you know, an Egyptian could feel totally free to say, oh, the mufti's uh, a loser. He's a political appointee. I don't have to listen to him. Right. That said, that said, just to come back to Roberta's point, there is no shortage of, you know, authority figures, bearded Sunni Muslim authority figures who take to the airwaves, who take to the newspapers to denounce ISIL and what it does on a daily basis. And remember that the victims of groups like ISIL tend to be Muslims, right? So it may even be seen yeah. as surpassingly odd for a Muslim who just had his family killed by ISIL that he now has to denounce ISIL like that. Incidentally, I mean, Tarek, I think, you know, and you can Google this if you don't believe me, the one unifying figure, you can draw a line through Iraq that has brought Shi, Sunni, uh, Kurdish people together, militants, adherents, Mm. is Lionel Richie. I kid you not. (laughs) They they, they interviewed some prisoners from... uh, I don't know if it was Abu Ghraib who came and said, oh, I, 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 I you know, would destroy these people, but I hear hello, and I, it just brings tears to <laughs> oh, my eyes. Hello is— uh... Yeah, there was this one transcendental figure, it's Lionel Richie in the Arab Middle East. Uh, but that, it, just, it just speaks to, I think, the paucity of options when you're talking about nation states dealing with amorphous uh, uh, paramilitary entities. I will say that there was a provocative <laughs> headline in I... the Washington Post, Tarek. It said— yes. And I'm sure you read this. The hidden hand behind the Islamic State militants, Saddam Hussein's, as if he's coming back from the dead after the gallows. I I quote uh, the story. It says, even with the influx of thousands of foreign fighters, almost all of the leaders of the Islamic State are former Iraqi officers, including Mm -hmm. the members of its shadowy military and security committees and the majority of its emirs and princes, according to Iraqis, Syrians and analysts who study the group. They have brought to the organization the military expertise and some of the agendas of the former Ba'athists, as well of the smuggling networks developed to avoid sanctions in the 1990s and which now facilitate the Islamic State's illicit oil trading, which brings to mind that Donald Rumsfeld press conference. You know, this is this is what mm. free people do. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and you know, I, Tariq, I, I do not recall Saddam Hussein being an overtly religious messianic person. He did it when it was convenient. You yeah, know, towards to, the end of his to go towards on the, the end of his rule. Yes, yes. Towards the end of his rule, remember it's Saddam Hussein who puts the words "Allahu Akbar" God is greatest on the Iraqi flag. Um, mm. You know, so he did. Tour, after the first Gulf War, he did make this uh, these ostentatious displays of religiosity. I mean, he's the guy who commissions a, a copy of the Quran to be written in his blood. You know, so he is. You know, he did. He did play with religion, and uh, you know, one of his uh, former Former, you know, high-ranking deputies, Isaac Ibrahim Adouri, was um, uh, after after the second Gulf War is was. Uh, but he also had a Yazidi and, Yazidi yeah. minister. The uh, he had a Christian. He had a Christian. Tariq Aziz was a Christian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, he was a Baathist. Baathists tend to be secular, but after uh, after the. Uh, uh, the first Gulf War, and remember, also he's dealing with Iran, and so they, there's a there's a it's rational for him to try to play on Sunni uh, supremacism. But the point is this this different question, um, you know, to what extent is ISIL the heir of the old Ba'ath Party? I mean, there's no doubt, right, that many of these Ba'athist networks are uh, involved in ISIL, and that much of ISIL security apparatus seems to come from that. But think about this, right? Think about this organization, right? It's 
an organization of former Baathists, weird, you know, jihadists coming from every single European capital, Chechnya, you know, Saudi Arabia. I mean, I watch videos of ISIL members being captured by other Syrian Islamist factions and executed. And they'll often read, you know, we're executing these ISIL members and they'll read their hometowns. And many of them are from Saudi Arabia. So we've got this organization, Iraqi Baathists, you know, Chechen, Saudis. In what universe do we think that this ragtag, motley bunch of people could actually, if left to their own devices, form a coherent, stable entity. I mean, the minute uh, they are left to their own devices, I think they're going to start falling on each other and killing uh, each other as well, because there's no way that this these guys could have a unified, um, a unified aim. And so that may give an answer to your earlier question and, 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 and in line with Roberta's answer to why would ISIL, you know, be sponsoring these kinds of attacks? Well, maybe because, you know, they want the U.S. to be bombing them. They want France to be bombing mm-hmm. them because that's the only way they stick together. Otherwise, if they actually have to attend to the great and real business of governing the territories that they quote unquote control, uh, the fissures within that very diverse and fractured group would appear and become very important very quickly. Tark, I-, I would love to ask you also about the attention that's being paid to Paris. As yeah. you know, other you know we had attacks in Beirut and there are attacks all in Africa and and there's been a huge outcry from people who think that West you know attacks on a gorgeous, stunning city of lights is are we're paying much too much attention mm. for reasons of uh, yeah I mean after all this happened in Beirut. Very recently, it happens almost every two weeks in Nigeria, right. which is almost a failed state, Tarek. And you have the religious north against the, you know, the the the, the Islamic north against the the Christian South. Um, you see it happen all the time in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the outrage that's reserved for kind of a you know a bastion York, of old Western Paris, culture, right? What do you think about that? As a professor, well, I mean, you... I certainly don't begrudge people their concern for. Paris, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've seen people say that, oh well, there is not the similar uh, concern over Beirut or over Ankara or over right. what happened in Egypt, and, you know, why, why should that be surprising to us? I mean, uh, you know, the average Westerner. You know, he knows Paris in an into he or she knows Paris in an intimate way, even if they've never been there, uh, in ways that you know they don't know Ankara and they don't know uh, they don't know Cairo. And so, you know, I'm not going to deny. You know, I'm looking for more. Re- you know, we, we, you know, people are not empathetic or sympathetic enough with each other. So, look, that you know, let's not let's not attack them when they are right. So, you know, if it's <laughs> if you know, it takes being a common descendant of uh, you know the Anglo-European. Culture, Culture to feel sympathy, fine, you know. Um, so no, and and remember also, you know, in 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 a way, I think if you you were to ask people, they might tell you, well, when this violence happens in in the Arab world, it's Arabs, uh, it's Muslims uh, fighting against other Muslims. It, there's something internal there, right? It's the it's those societies working out their dysfunctions and demons and their conflicts. 
when Muslims uh, attack France, people don't understand it the way it should be understood, which is for, for many of those Muslims, those are French Muslims, right? That is a French conflict being worked, being being expressed there. Uh, but they don't they don't see it that way, and understandably so, right? They see it as being attacked from the outside. And so consequently it more naturally awakens their sympathies. And that's not confusing to me or or worthy of opprobrium or scorn for me. That's that's sort of how people are. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Professor Tarek Massoud of Harvard's Kennedy School. He is an expert on the Arab Middle East and uh, the various um, uh, uprisings and revolutions and insurrections and anti-insurrections of the last six yeah. years. And in studio with me is Roberta Oster-Sachs, Emmy-winning former producer for Dateline NBC. We spent several years in Paris. Tarek, I do want to get at this idea of the far right and the I told you so element in France. You could totally see Marine Le Pen of the National mm. Front writing the speech of her lifetime um, as the tragedy of, of Friday night transpired. And uh, there's a there's an increasing coalition as you see the the the, the far right's uh, reach um, in in uh, parliament, in uh, regional elections, that there's this idea that we need to do more. Not only do we need to not enfranchise this class, that we ought to think about evictions and uh, expelling people more than we have, that that the idea of a, a multicultural uh, uh, France, Paris, is just not going to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you certainly do. You certainly do see this kind of um, this kind of ideology. I mean, you know, I don't think you know. I mean, it's easy for us to condemn Marine Le Pen, right? Um, I do think there is a, a bigger question that's a bit thornier. And wait, and just is, to illustrate yeah. how different, uh, the, you know, the the plate tectonics of of internal yeah. politics are working there. That she now has buy-in from some of the Jews in Paris, who after the Charlie Hebdo attacks and the the kosher grocery massacre, can you blame them? Well, yeah, because her father was a Holocaust denier. Her father makes jokes about the ovens and uh, <laughs> you know the but, Nazis but taking of, over Germany. So it tells you though she repudiates her father, thinking that right. in my new coalition I need the Orthodox Jews, I need the observant Jews because we share almost like an anti-Islamic uh, paranoia. It's strange, and and this is happening all across the Middle East. You know, you and I have talked about it offline. The yeah. fact that that Sisi in Egypt has a conversation with Netanyahu weekly, it's almost become enemy of my enemy. Well, it, it, it has in a way, but, you know, it's not all, you know, uh, you know certainly there's, you know, uh, Marine Le Pen is, is almost irredeemable. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, though, criticize French Jews for giving her a hearing because, you know, one of the great tragedies of the, the French situation in particular and the situation with French uh, Muslims is just how much they express their, uh, you know, alienation from the French state with anti-Semitism, right? Just it, it's something that yeah, doesn't make one, sense to me. Yeah, this one comedian has that salute, which is almost like an inverted, you know, yeah. Heil Hitler is, thing, yeah. which has become very mainstream. You see Tony Parker of the San Antonio Spurs in the United States. Uh, yes. You know, a lot of people using it unwittingly saying, oh, he's just a funny guy. He's a West African comic. Yeah, he's making fun of Jews, but it's, it's, not, it's not a kind of a political statement. It's almost yeah. this reflexive anti-Semitism that pokes fun at the Holocaust. For, for me as a Muslim, you know, one of the things that I always, um, you know, 
I, I don't know if took pride in is the right term, but, you know, something that would comfort me is that, you know, look, we Muslims didn't have anything to do with the Holocaust, right? Now, Netanyahu would give you a different story, right? He'd tell you. But, you know, the the fact is that your the Holocaust was a function of European anti-Semitism. You know, this is a crime of which Muslim peoples were by and large uh, uh, um, innocent. And in fact, the only European country that ends with more Jews after World War II than it started with is a Muslim majority country, Albania. But now, so one of one of the deeply troubling things is the uptake by Muslims within Europe of this kind of anti-Semitic uh, discourse and uh, like the kind you're describing. Um, so, so the point is, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna attack French Jews for giving Marine Le Pen uh, a, 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 an open ear because of the you know of of what what has happened to them. But um, yeah, I don't know what this means for a multicultural France. You know, for, you know, you know, France is you know. It, it seems to have a really hard time, and Europe more generally, a very hard time dealing with the Muslims that they already have, the Muslims that were already born and raised there. And so that does raise the question of, okay, now we've got all of these uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Syrian refugees. You know, yes, you know, these refugees need to be taken in. This is a humanitarian crisis of the first order. At the same time, we France can't deal properly with the Muslims it already has. And now we want them to take in uh, uh, these additional refugees. That feels to me like a recipe for something much worse uh, down the line. So there's no good answers here. It just reveals to me just how bad things may yet get. You know, I want to throw in another jump ball here, Joe, strategically, mm. is Iran. Roberta, I mean, there there have been some mumblings that the Obama administration's hand in nuclear negotiations with Iran was was moved, was nudged by its lack of options in Syria and ISIL. And if you have this, this, uh, you know, it's it's again goes to enemy of my enemy. If the Shiite Iranians are providing the closest thing to a firewall against the spread of, you know, the metastasis of of ISIS, do you then kind of resolve yourself to you know what this is a nation state? They're self interested. We can concede maybe on sanctions and give them a nuclear runway because the alternative of an ISIL kind of taking over swaths of Iran. Do you do you kind of buy that? Because then what effectively is we've we've done is given Iran uh, the keys to the car in Syria. They already control a lot of uh, the, the political dialogue in Baghdad. I have been very uncomfortable with that whole decision. And I, I don't really have an answer for you. I think it's very, very complicated. And I think Obama was kind of backed up against a wall on that. But what backed our hands up against the wall? I always wanted to know this. I thought that the United States had the leverage. The the boot was on the neck of the, the mullahs over there. No, but with Congress. I don't think that he had any leverage. I think he had to make a deal. He he wanted to get some something, some kind of decision, some kind of deal. And so he and I think I think most people are glad that, that there's better a deal with the devil that you know than no deal. Prof, what do you think? Well, you know, for me, I think Obama is making this bet that if you can somehow normalize the relationship with Iran, that right. that will remove this rally around the flag that the regime has, um, you know, when they're confronted with Western sanctions. It's, you know, if you, you know, if the, if the regime can no longer claim that they are the victims of uh, Western machinations, then maybe these uh, reform and opposition movements within the country will get more traction and actually able to bring bring some change. I don't know. That's a huge bet. Um, look, I will say who has been the great beneficiary of the last 15 years of American Middle East policy, it absolutely 
absolutely has been Iran. Mm-hmm. Forget about the nuclear deal, right? The nuclear deal, you know, you know, who gave the biggest gift to Iran? It's not Barack Obama. It's George W. But Bush by removing so, Saddam Hussein. Isn't that so counterintuitive? If you think back to the arguments that were being made in 2002, 2003, it sounded so persuasive. I mean, you take out Kabul, you take out the Taliban, and you clear out elements of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. You take out Saddam Hussein's regime. And in the middle, the Iranian street would rise and then democracy would flourish. If anything, it was just the obverse of that. Yeah, but, you know, there was never a credible link between remaking the, the, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan and somehow generating, uh, you know, democratic revolution in in Iran. Like no, that, but there was this element know, look, of envy, neighbor envy, like, gosh, what, what are we, chop liver? On the con- look, I mean, th- that's because these people, you know, who were in charge of American foreign policy during that period knew nothing about nation building, knew nothing about what revolutions do. Revolutions don't lead to democracy in the short term. Revolutions lead to disorder and chaos. And Well, it, know, was, interesting. Ne- it was interesting no to see co- yeah. George Bush 41 in his wheelchair come out a week ago. He now has this uh, memoir that he did. Uh, with the former editor of Newsweek, yeah. where he comes out and pretty openly says, I don't know that Dick Cheney that was advising my son, and I certainly don't know that Rummy. Um, yes. Those guys did not give him good advice. They almost made it look like they manipulated the little boy. Well, HW41 has always hated Rumsfeld, but I think you're right with Cheney. They felt surprised. My view is that with Cheney, 9-11 really changed him. Um, that not, you know, change because after after all, Tariq, I always read. You know, they taught you in Middle Eastern uh, studies classes in college mm-hmm. that the United States did not finish the job in Iraq uh, after Desert Storm and the first Gulf War because it specifically didn't want the vacuum that we see today with the Kurds yeah. divvying up the, the the Northwest region with the Sunnis and Shiite people killing each other with the provocations coming in from across the border, Iran suddenly saying, maybe we can go in and snap up some territory along uh, Abadan. I mean, it's it's scary to what extent that prophecy has, has become true. Right. And I think, again, I mean, my other people have different explanations for this, but my feeling is that 9-11 just totally changed Mm -hmm. that. And these people really believed that you needed to go in and stir the pot and begin shaking these countries uh, one by one. Uh, But the problem is, look, you can we can destroy regimes. That is not a challenge. That is very easy. Show me a dictator. We can get rid of them tomorrow. The question is, can you erect a stable order? Forget about a democratic order. Can you erect a stable order in the dictator? place. And we have never been able to do that. Can we switch gears and head back to some a topic that you touched upon earlier? Mm. This refugee crisis, yeah. this is the most severe crisis we have seen since World War II. And it's getting worse every day. What's your, uh, can you step up on the balcony and talk about that and what you think we as, I, a, we as Americans ought to do and, and as a at bigger picture as a, the world looks at this bigger picture, what responsibility the developed world has to address this crisis? I think we have an, an immense responsibility to address this crisis and to reduce the human suffering in Syria. And uh, that's got to have a kind of multi-pronged approach. One part of the approach has to be brokering a political settlement in Syria. 
And my humble view is that we're much more likely to get a political settlement if we include Assad. Um, but then it also, you're right, we've got these refugees. They're not going back anytime soon and we've got to do something with them as well. And like, you know, as I've said, I think integrating them into Europe is going to be very, very difficult and is going to have long term, uh, long term effects. I would I would like to see Arab countries, particularly the rich Gulf states, which are pouring billions of dollars into Syria, arming various Islamic rebel groups. I'd like to see them redirect some of that money to refugee resettlement uh, within their own borders. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I I would love to see it happen. Um, like which uh, Arab countries? Uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates. Um, I mean, so you, know, you would we would put them, we would take them out of Austria, Germany, and fly well, no, them? I, I, well, so you How know, we there's two that? different questions. There's the question of the people fleeing from Syria now, and what I'd like to do is make Arab countries more attractive to those people. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other distinct question of what to do with the folks already in Europe, and there I have no answer. I think, you know, as you just articulated, right, that, that sentence, we're going to fly these people out of, you know, right. that sounds so barbaric and right. inhumane. I don't want to be implicated in anything like that. Um, so, um, well, no, I, mean, so I don't know what the solution is. It could be perceived as an airlift. I mean, there's all sorts you, of... You, you, could, you could do things to make it attractive for people to go back to the Arab world. Um, but, you know, I, you know, you know, and and but I'm I'm not sure. You know, maybe I just don't have enough faith in the Europeans. And right? maybe I don't it, maybe ha- it should be asked, uh, Professor Masood. Does Syria exist? Should Assyria exist? Is it totally such a you know? It's again, it's that metaphor of do you do you even bother trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together mm. at this point? Oh, there's at now, now there is no uh, there is no Syria. I mean, I think what we're looking at is there's going to be a rump, a Alawi state, um, which will be sort of in the western part of the country. And then you'll have the Sunni heartland that's really going to be a kind of uh, a zone of, uh, of chaos, a post-apocalyptic chaos uh, for quite some time where Islamist groups, right? Because remember, lots of the quote unquote good guys, rebels, are also radical Islamists. Um, so, it's you know, they, their differences from ISIS would be differences professors like me could discern because we're in the weeds on this stuff, but uh, you know, people, you know, common sense folks wouldn't be able to really know the difference between these two, these different groups. And how so, much, how much of the Middle East right now is uh, broadly a proxy battle between Tehran and Riyadh? I wonder well, I, when I look at these places, like is Syria? You talk about the the, the Saudi Kingdom still, e- even when it's deficit spending, uh, financing yeah. these quote unquote, uh, you know, moderate rebels yeah, over there. Yeah, that that yeah. that's been a disaster for the United States, and there's clearly no governance alternative to yeah. Assad, not a credible one that we've seen at this point. Right. Yemen, Syria, Iraq, right? This is all this proxy war. And ironically, uh, on all of these conflicts, we have a little bit more in common with Iran uh, than we do with our uh, quote unquote Gulf allies. Um, I would say, you know, I mean, look, even the Russians, right? The, the What the Russians are trying to do in Syria makes a lot more sense from the standpoint of their national interests than what the Saudis are doing, you know, from... Yeah, but you have Obama sitting there with Putin. This is unbelievable photo, if you look at it today on the AP and Reuters, in that that talk in Turkey, uh, pleading with them ostensibly, can you not pound the rebels? Uh, Can you 
logic can you stick to ISIS? Because you know you're using this as a broad front. Russia has a vested interest in keeping Assad entrenched there because it looks yes. at Syria as a military base, as a proxy against you know United States hegemony in the territory. Iran has yeah. vested interest there with the minority and Hezbollah. I mean, it is a it is a disaster, and dare I say, it almost has specks and flecks of a potential World War Three. Oh. Not that you necessarily want to go there, but Rob, then when you get we weren't gonna go that crazy today. Yeah, but when you get when you get, you know, if you look back at World War One and you see such yeah. a violent yeah. realignment of of balance of power you know, and you know friends what it of looks my friends. Like? You right. know what it looks like to me, Robin? It looks like Afghanistan uh, after uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how did that movie end? That movie ended with us, you know, we funded a bunch of uh, radical Islamist rebels who then turned out to be not so good for the world. And, you know, it's the same story, right? The Russians going in to shore up an ally of theirs and we and the Saudis basically funding radical Islamist rebels against them. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's the same thing that's happening here. I th I would say if, you know, I mean, it's going to be very difficult for President Obama, but I think it's in our interest for the Russians to succeed in reestablishing some modicum of authority in uh, of state authority in Syria. Cause that look, seems to what, be a very Kissingerian read, like dispense with human rights. You even <laughs> There's no that, human rights regardless. There are no champions of yes, human rights on saw, the ground in Syria. You saw the 60 Minutes a couple months ago. He gassed his own people. He barrel bombs them. I mean, what kind of... Really, is that is that the best the uh, that NATO and the developed world can do? Is that, listen, no, th this is could, real here's politics. Here's what we could do. No, here's what we could do. Okay, we could invest billions of dollars and thousands, if not tens of thousands, of American and European and NATO lives in invading Syria and establishing, putting boots on the ground and doing what we really, we kind of did, but ultimately failed at doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. I just don't see that as being possible. And you know this famous phrase, ought implies can. When you say you should do something, it implies you can do it. And I don't think we really can do it politically. I don't think there's the appetite for it here. And so what to me, what is the most, is the Why quickest- Why do we have institutions? Why do we have the UN? Why do we have NATO? What have all these things that emanated from the disastrous experience of Europe and World War II and everything else that happened? It seems like, you know, there's that hilarious onion piece that the UN is just this place overtaken by feral cats and it hasn't been cleaned in a long time. You wonder where are these people? Ban, Ban, ban Moon is inveighing against these things, but they're powerless. Yeah, they're powerless because ultimately what matters is the interests of the states that constitute the UN and particularly the Security Council. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these member states have to make decisions about spending money in their budgets and sending into harm's way citizens of their countries. And that's a very different calculation. It's a calculation that every country has to make for itself. And it's a calculation based on national interests. You know, Tariq, it used to be the one thing that would incite the Arab street. I know you hate hearing the term. Arab Street. Yes. No. It's not at all monolithic, but now the Arab Middle East is a whole different thing. You're right. Well, well, it is, and and you know, uh, one of the one of the tragedies of the this season of chaos and disorder that we see in the Middle East is that, you know, when somebody like Netanyahu comes along and says, "Look, I'm not so thrilled about the idea of a Palestinian state because it's going to become one more failed Arab state that can be a a, a, a safe harbor for groups like ISIS." Uh, you know, that argument, which in the past would have looked ridiculous and would have uh, merited scorn, now doesn't look like such an outlandish mm. argument. 
And if you recall, Assad let some uh, refugees across the border initially into the Golan Heights to, as a pushback to Netanyahu. Who's like, if you want to get a taste of this, you know what's good for you, right? Right. I mean, that that right. it just tells you that everything that started so optimistically was it in January of 2010 in the Arab Street and Tahrir Square, which a lot of which was reversed. I know you were getting called left and right, Tariq, yeah. you know, to appear on that. It's just. Um, it's so disconcerting to me the way you know the Arab Spring has kind of morphed into this this bedlam, um, right? Uh, you know, scenes of, of 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 nihilism like what you what you see in Paris. That, that Libya, there was no great resolution to that. That Damascus, something that started with the the hope of democracy and singing in the street, turned into something that's kind of borderline genocide at this point. Absolutely, and look what what we've seen after the Arab Spring is the collapse of states, right? And mm-hmm. so if we get if we take anything out of this, right, it's that the main task in the Middle East is not building democracy. I mean, that's a distant dream. It's building functioning states. And you know, we, we've got it when we think about American foreign policy, we got to think when we're thinking about a particular intervention or action, we should be thinking first and foremost: Is this going to decrease the amount of order and stability in the region or increase it. And if there's a risk that's going to decrease, if there's a risk that's going to weaken existing state structures, then we need to be very careful. Full disclosure, that was Tarek Massoud, professor at Harvard's Kennedy School. Pick up his new book, The Arab Spring, Pathways of Repression and Reform. Thank you so much for joining us, Tarek. Thank you, Robin and Roberta. It was great joining you. And Roberta Oster-Sachs, former producer at Dateline NBC. She traveled to Paris quite a bit and covered the September 11 attacks. Um, so great to have you in studio. Thank you for having me. Full disclosure, we are on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, WRIR, and SoundCloud. Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. Join us next week. Thank you.